Welcome to Hollywood in Color, where I tell the stories of the stars usually left out of entertainment history, the people of color in front of and behind the camera who have been representing for over a century. I'm your host, Diana Martinez. It's easy for the briefest of times to forget what is happening in the world in order to answer email, to eat lunch, play with my dog. Sometimes I even have fun. But those moments are also followed by hours of scrolling and clicking on news stories, of perpetual lumps in my throat that cannot and should not go away. As much as my life as a scholar has taught me that the movies have never been a fully escapist medium, I feel that now, deeply. I've been watching lots of westerns lately for work, and for this podcast, I've watched Gone with the Wind and Song of the South, among other things. A lot of films that remind me how much what people think and say today, especially about people of color, has been said and thought and acted on before. History repeats itself as terribly cliché, but it's true. Film scholars even refer to the reappearance of certain genres in different periods of time as cycles. It's almost predictable. And I really feel that there will be another Gone with the Wind very soon. Now, why I say this will become clear in this season, but for now, what I mean is that we are due a film that makes America confront the past and present in a similar and uncomfortable way that audiences that saw Gone with the Wind had to. And this also means that there will be another figure like Hattie McDaniel in that film. Hattie was a performer for more than three decades, three crucial decades in which the status of the Black performer waxed and waned alongside the status of Black citizens in America. Hattie worked through Jim Crow segregation, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, and the emerging civil rights movement. And as historically specific as her story is, it is also very familiar. The color barrier that she supposedly broke in 1940 when she won an Oscar has time and again been rebuilt and reinforced. Besides Hattie McDaniel, only seven other Black women have won for acting in the Academy Awards' 90 years. Which isn't at all fair, but as you'll see in the episodes to come, awards and publicity and Hollywood itself has never been just about acting. It is a political space, one that recreates on screen and behind the scenes the class warfare, racial rifts, and gender divisions of America. It is a political space that Hattie quickly learned to use critically and masterfully. This is episode one of Hattie McDaniel, Showstopper. When Hattie McDaniel won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1940, she became the first Black woman, the first Black person, to ever win an Oscar. 
Hattie won for her role in Gone with the Wind, where she played the loyal slave of protagonist Scarlett O'Hara. Where are you going without your shawl and not have sick to set in? And how come you didn't ask them gentlemen to stay for supper? You ain't got no more matters in the field, hand. That's to be Miss Helen Dunlavin with you. Miss Scarlett? Come on in the house. Come on in before you catch your death of dampness. No, I'm going to wait for Paul to come home from the Wilkeson. Come on in here. In the film, Hattie is great, a scene stealer even, but in 2018, it is sometimes difficult to push past the stereotype the character is built on to see how good she is. I mean, her character doesn't even have a proper name in the film. She's called Only Mammy. Originating in the time of slavery, the Mammy was a potent myth. The Mammy isn't real but a careful construction that was deployed strategically. Two views of black women prevailed. Number one, that they are Jezebels, uncontrollably sexual and driven by lust. This was a convenient stereotype that was deployed to excuse slave owners' rape and abuse of black women. But the second characterization of black women is the opposite of the Jezebel, and that is the Mammy. Usually depicted as a large woman, the Mammy is caring and warm, a natural, though non-sexual, mother. Not only was the Mammy supposedly well-treated, she was depicted as happy to be subservient. The Mammy figure was created to cover up the abuses of slavery and cover up the stark power imbalance at the heart of it all. So, the Mammy is frequently depicted as the arbiter of white morality and southern gentility, the mother responsible for keeping the plantation's rules and hierarchies intact. She believes in them. But this is not how actual slaves felt. But in Gone with the Wind, Mammy is the one telling Scarlet how to be a lady, and the one who, when the Civil War ends, stays with her owners. Hattie wasn't the first black woman to play a Mammy. In fact, Gone with the Wind wasn't even Hattie's first time playing a Mammy character. This was almost the only type of role she was cast in as soon as she arrived in Hollywood in 1931. It was pretty much the only type of role she played, even after winning an Oscar, until she died. And because of this, though Hattie is largely considered an important trailblazer today, at the height of her fame, she was a polarizing actress. Black moviegoers, film critics, and activists were vocal against Gone with the Wind, a film that romanticized a traumatic moment in history. And they had a tough time accepting the outpouring of recognition from the white media for a black actress playing a stereotype, an insidious stereotype that upheld the institution of slavery that killed millions and scarred generations. But Mammy is only one role of many that made up Hattie's multifaceted career. She was also a singer, a songwriter, a stage and vaudeville veteran, a comedian, and a radio personality. 
And in all those other mediums, she defied her film image. She would sing about dancing sexy and wanting to feel a man. She would parody white actresses in her act. She was a founder of one of the first all-female black vaudeville troops in the country. So it's too simple to say Hattie McDaniel took on stereotypical roles in Hollywood out of complicity with the white machine of Hollywood, or out of pure necessity. Her business decisions were as complex and complicated as she was. And when asked by her critics how she felt about being the world's most famous mammy, she responded, I'd rather make $700 a week playing a maid than earn $7 a day being a maid. Poet Rita Dove eloquently encapsulates the opposing tensions represented and embodied by Hattie. Dove does this by reflecting on the moments leading up to Hattie's historic Oscar win. Her poem, written in 2004, is called Hattie McDaniel Arrives at the Coconut Grove. Hattie McDaniel arrives at the Coconut Grove late. In aqua and ermine, gardenia scaling her left sleeve in a spasm of scent, her gloves white, her smile chastened, purse giddy with stars and rhinestones clipped to her brilliantined hair, on her free arm that fine negro, Mr. Wonderful Smith. It's the day that isn't, February 29th, at the end of the shortest month of the year. And the shittiest, too, everywhere except Hollywood, California, where the maid can wear mink and still be a maid, bobbing her bandaged head and cursing the white folks under her breath as she smiles and shoes their silly daughters in from the night dew. What can she be thinking of, striding into the ballroom where no black face has ever showed itself except above a serving tray? Hi, hat Hattie. Mama Mac, her haughtiness, the little lady from showboat whose name Bing forgot, Beulah and Bertha and Melina and Carrie and Violet and Cynthia and Fidelia, one half of the dark Barrymores. Dear Mammy, we can't help but hug you, crawl into your generous lap, tease you with arch innuendo so we can feel that much more wicked and youthful and sleek. But oh, what we forgot. The four husbands, the phantom pregnancy, your famous parties, your celebrated icebox cake, your giggle above the red petticoats rustle, Black girl and white girl walking hand in hand down the railroad tracks in Kansas City, six years old. The man who advised you, now that you were famous, to begin eliminating your more common acquaintances and your reply, catching him square in the eye. That's a good idea. I'll start right now by eliminating you. Is she or isn't she? Three million dishes a truckload of aprons and head rags later, and here you are, poised between husbands and factions, no corset wide enough to hold you in, your huge face a dark moon split by that spontaneous smile, your trademark, your curse. No matter, Hattie. It's a long, beautiful walk into that flower-smothered standing ovation, so go on and make them wait.
As Dove sees it, Hattie is something of a beautiful contradiction. She played maids, but in real life she wore fine clothes. She spoke the lines of a caricature of a slave while resisting the racism of Hollywood. She was for most of her life a supporting actor, but she was also a star. She wasn't allowed to sit with her co-stars in the segregated nightclub that hosted the Oscars, and yet she stole the spotlight that night. And though her success surprised Hollywood insiders, her success didn't really surprise anyone who knew her when she was growing up in the Midwest. Hattie McDaniel was born in Wichita, Kansas on June 10, 1895. Her parents, Sue and Henry McDaniel, were born into slavery. They met around 1863 near the Elk River in Tennessee, where they both sought refuge shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation declared slaves were free. Henry and Susan's brother were friends, but Henry and Susan didn't get to know each other very well. The proclamation also allowed free men to enroll in the military and fight in the Civil War. Henry signed up to be a Union soldier. He survived the war, and afterwards he was determined to make a home in Tennessee, but he found that not much changed after the war. In 1868, he and two co-workers were attacked by members of the Ku Klux Klan, which had formed in Tennessee only three years before. This wasn't an isolated event. Though supposedly slavery was over, Black people's experiences proved otherwise. Henry, like many Black Southerners, left the South during Reconstruction, the period after the Civil War, and a lot of them went to Kansas, a relatively new state that had in essence launched a huge PR campaign to brand itself as a land of freedom. But when Henry McDaniel, his new wife Susan, and their children arrived, along with thousands of other refugees, they found it just as difficult to find jobs and acceptance. From 1880 to 1887, the McDaniels family moved around a lot. Henry had a tough time finding a job. Not only was the Kansas job market small, Henry's health suffered. He had sustained lots of injuries from war. He lost his hearing, his jaw was permanently broken, he could hardly walk. So finally, the McDaniels settled in Wichita, which was a bigger city, but was also as unwelcoming to Black people. It was left to Susan and the kids to work to make ends meet. Hattie was the youngest of 13 children, only seven of which survived. The family struggled in Wichita for five years after Hattie was born until they decided to move to Denver, Colorado. The racism was still prevalent in Denver. There was also a larger black community with strong leadership that fueled an activist scene. The McDaniels still couldn't find steady jobs and the kids often went hungry, but they also seemed more at home there. The family participated in church and community events, and the kids, especially Otis and Sam, Hattie's older brothers, began to dabble in entertainment. At first, they just liked it, and then they realized there was a paying audience for their song and dances. (laughs) 
Patty and her siblings performed all over town in churches, schools, neighborhood theaters, and they got really good. In May 1914, when she was 19, Patty and her sister Etta formed the McDaniel Sisters Company, an all-female minstrel troupe. Now, when you hear the term minstrel, you might be thinking of white actors in blackface performing and speaking in offensive dialects and perpetuating terrible stereotypes. You would be correct about that. But after the Civil War, black performers began using minstrelsy not just to make money, I mean white audiences loved minstrel shows, but to spoof white minstrelsy. Performers reclaimed their blackness by publicly subverting the stereotypes used by white performers. Although black minstrels still blacked up with burnt cork to perform in blackface, their performances had a dual meaning. Where a white audience saw a more authentic minstrel experience, black fans recognized these acts as political commentary. Many black minstrel performers were activists of sorts, using songs and skits to delve into topics such as racial violence, spousal abuse, and alcoholism. This subject matter usually made it so minstrelsy was dominated by men. Women were thought too delicate to be comedians or witty social commentators. But Hattie's troupe proved everyone wrong. The McDaniel Sisters Company was a hit. They performed around Denver for almost a year. By the time she was 20 years old, Hattie McDaniel was said to stand in the front rank of comedians and character artists. She had made quite a name for herself by becoming a well-rounded entertainer. She sang, she acted, she was funny, and she constantly pushed the envelope. In 1915, a few months after the Denver Star newspaper gave her a glowing review, she began planning a big show in March. It was an ambitious idea. With the money she saved working as a maid, she hired performers, she wrote material, she rehearsed nonstop. The newspaper wrote, Stay off this date, March 4th. It belongs to Hattie McDaniel Hickman, who will give something new. Howard Hickman was Hattie's husband. In January 1911, 17-year-old Hattie and 22-year-old Howard got married. It's unclear how they met, but they both had a love for performing. Howard was the first African-American pianist in Denver to play during silent film screenings, which was a pretty great gig. He was wildly supportive of her and her career. He would help her practice and provided musical accompaniment for her shows. They had a great companionship and marriage, and it ended unexpectedly. The night before her can't-miss-it show, Howard died. He had been sick for a couple weeks, developing pneumonia. Hattie would take care of him every second she wasn't prepping for the show. But no one could do anything. Hattie canceled the big performance. She moved back in with her parents. She became a full-time maid. She didn't perform for a year. And then, on the one-year anniversary of Howard's death, Hattie announced in the newspaper that she was making her comeback. She cast herself as the lead in a comedic play she had written herself. It was called Spirella Johnson from Memphis, Tennessee. The show sold out in record time, and it was a huge hit. 
Patty worked hard to get on bigger stages beyond Denver. In 1924, she joined the Pantages Vaudeville Tour, which catered to white audiences. She toured the U.S. and Canada, making much more than she did in her self-funded gigs in Denver. But it was grueling work. Not only was the performance schedule incredibly demanding, touring as a Black performer was incredibly difficult and dangerous. It was near impossible in some cities to find a hotel, a restaurant, or a train that allowed African Americans. Eventually, she left the tour for her own solo show. Hattie became a part of the Theater Owners Booking Association's Black Vaudeville Circuit, also known as TOBA. In this circuit, Hattie played to African American audiences in majority Black-owned theaters. It didn't offer much more pay or security or ease of travel than the Pantages job, but it did offer more chances to develop her signature style. Future stars like entertainer Bill Bojangles Robinson and singer Bessie Smith also had their start on Toba tours. On one of her stops in Kansas City, Missouri, Hattie met Hartzell Parham, also known as Tiny, which was a funny name for the large man with enormous talent. Tiny was a pianist and composer, and when he met Hattie, the collaboration came naturally. They recorded a two-song album together, released on a small label. On another tour stop, this time in Illinois, Hattie met Lovey Austin, a preeminent black female blues artist in Chicago. Lovey helped Hattie on two songs. One was called I Wish I Had Somebody. Every time I think I'm sick with someone that I just met. I'm bound to discover another heavy lover Getting what I ought to get No wonder I complain Yes, I'm searching in vain Said I wish I had somebody Didn't love nobody but me Just me I wish I had a sweetie who'd be just like a sweetie should be. And the other song was Boo Hoo Blues. I'm coming from seclusion to tell you about my man. I'm coming from seclusion to tell you about my man. Just a few things of how my trouble began. The singles were released by a major label, and Hattie's profile as a blues singer rose. She worked with Tiny again, and she made other friends in the thriving Midwest blues scene. As a songwriter, Hattie had a confessional style, drawing on heartbreak and anger to talk about infidelity, sexuality, and emotional abuse. But in her songs, Hattie is rarely a victim. Instead, she's empowered with clarity, self-reflection, and sometimes cynicism. Her song, Any Kind of Man Would Be Better Than You, 
emphasizes this independent Hattie. The song, That New Lovemaker of Mine, is contrary to the non-sexual way that audiences would know her later on in films. That new lovemaker, that modest Jimmy Taker, the sweetest man that's known. I feel like dreaming, but I In 1931, Hattie moved to Los Angeles. Hattie's brother Sam lived in Hollywood. He was doing pretty well. He was a featured actor in a well-known audio drama on the radio called The Optimistic Do-Nuts and was well-connected in the entertainment industry. He also made money by being in movies, playing bit roles in big Hollywood pictures. Hattie moved to Hollywood thinking that, like her brother, she could pick up some work in the movies, small parts, in order to fund her singing career. She went to the Central Casting Agency and signed up. But she didn't have to wait very long. In May 1931, she got a call from Charles Butler, who headed the African-American casting division and was one of the most prominent African-Americans working in the industry. She had booked her first acting job. Throughout the 1930s, Hattie was seen in domestic roles in films with huge stars. She was in Blonde Venus with Marlena Dietrich, I'm No Angel with Mae West, and China Seas with Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. Through this all, she attempted to balance her on-screen work with touring in theater groups and singing in different clubs. Sometimes when neither of those generated enough money, She cleaned houses. But things changed with 1936's Showboat, an adaptation of the hit Broadway musical, a musical that Hattie had been in a few small-town productions of. In the film, Hattie got to work with Paul Robeson, arguably one of the most famous Black actors of the time. When filming wrapped, Paul said Hattie was one of the best actresses he ever met. In smaller roles, Hattie won audiences over with her witty lines and delivery. Showboat was an important role for her because it elevated her to more than just a subservient character, even though she still played a maid. But in 1939, Hattie was cast in the movie that would define her career, Gone with the Wind. 
In next week's episode, we dive deep into the film that made Hattie a household name and that divided audiences already at odds. This episode of Hollywood in Color has been produced, edited, and narrated by me, Diana Martinez. All artwork for the show was designed by Shelby Mooring. Every episode of this podcast is heavily researched. If you want info on the books, articles, and sources I used, check out the show notes. There, you'll also find info about the theme song and other music used in this episode. If you liked this episode, please leave a rating for the show wherever you listen to this podcast. If you have a little more time, a review would be awesome. Let me know what you like, what needs improvement, and of course, your ideas for future seasons. And with that said, I can't wait to tell you another chapter of our story next week.